Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join guilt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited of our guest today. We're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, you name it, even, you know, acquisitions. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, L.D. Salmanson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you were originally born in the States, but then all of a sudden, you know, you ended up being raised in Israel. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, yeah, so don't ask my opinion about where we're moving at that age. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm originally from Providence, uh, Rhode Island, even though I didn't spend a lot of time there. It's uh, one of those little states that most people outside the U.S. don't know that exists. It's kind of on their way to Boston. They drove through it and think about it too much. Um, But it's a fun little place. Um, and we moved pretty quickly thereafter. And uh, I spent early years uh, in the States, um, and then uh, my family decided to move to Israel, and my parents really, and um, ended up starting school there. A lot of back and forth in the early years, but still um, basically in Israel at that point, and um, met Ben, who's today my co-founder again, done a lot of work together over the years across uh, multiple firms, and um, grew up in a kind of weird environment, so Jerusalem and Israel is a, it's a strange place, it's kind of a real mixing kind of a culture, right? So you have um, very religious people, very secular people. Um, all religions are represented. Um, it's just a very strange uh, place to grow up. Uh, very neighborhood oriented. Yet you kind of know everyone from your age group across the entire um, city because it feels big, but it's really only you know um, maybe a million and change people. And then you start breaking it down to your the groups of people you might know or or be like. Um, it's a lot smaller pool all of a sudden. Um, but yeah, really great education. Uh, very fortunate that the education system in Israel um, is a public education system, and it's it's deteriorated a bit since then. I've heard, but at the time, it was still a very good system. Um, Israel went through this really weird experiment where we had this you know, million, million and a half Russians immigrated to Israel in over the course of you know less than a year. And um, when the Iron Curtain came down, all of a sudden, people who were extremely educated showed up in Israel overnight, and um, it just complete boost to to the to everything. Right, our teachers were all former professors of, you know, mathematics and physics and then teaching, you know, seventh grade math, right? So we were extremely privileged, even though we didn't appreciate it at the time because we were in high school or whatever. Um, but then um, we were also very lucky, Ben and I, you know, 
uh, to be able to start working together around then. But um, we start our company uh, kind of fixing computers when we were about 13, 14. I can't really pinpoint the age, but it was completely by accident. We were really fortunate. Went to fix somebody's computer and then it was like something along the lines of, you know, hey, how much should we pay you? And then start thinking about, wait a minute, pay. we didn't really get the question. They're like, oh, they, they need to pay us a favor. Um, I don't know. And they offered us some money. We're like, yes, great. And as we're walking out, I kind of figure out, we get paid for this? Like, we can build a business by doing this? Um, so, uh, and we did um, subsequently build a pretty big business out of that that we ended up selling or merging. So what, 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 was, what was that business? Because, I mean, you guys ended up selling that business before you went into the Army. So uh, so what was that business? And, uh, you know, you guys were quite young. So uh, how oh, is we that? we were really young. Yeah. We, we made, it's funny, the amount of stories, how many stupid things you did. I mean, like, you do, you do stupid things starting companies always because that's just kind of the, the nature of starting companies. You have no idea what you're doing. But add, like, the fact that you're 14 or 15, you really have no clue what you're doing, right? So you don't know what life is like. Forget what building companies are. So uh, we were complete degenerates. Um, but that being said, you know, we were inquisitive. We liked learning new things. Um, this is the early days of kind of, sorry, today we don't really think about hardware. But remember, you know, back in the day, hardware was a big thing. You know, spending a lot of time on getting hardware right was really hard. So it was a big business around that, what today we call IT. Um, and it's a big, you know, not really sexy business. By the time it was kind of that sexy forefront of businesses and and the building server farms for, you know, large organizations and we also kind of transitioned to building some websites and things like that so at the time again 90s websites were cool um so building websites was a big thing and being able to translate them into hebrew at the time which was like a really tough challenge because the the letters are going the wrong direction nobody in html really gave a, a crap about what happens in israel and their lettering system so a lot of money doing that and then so it was really really great experience but then two things happened one is you have to go to the army in israel and you never really give a lot of thought to things that happen as a teenager and you never even thought the business would take off. But then all of a sudden you have, you're sitting there with a serious business and, and you just can't continue. You just have to go into the army and the army has all these programs that help you. If you're, you know, you're an athlete or, you know, some serious academic, you know, you can get deferred or completely or partially. Right. But there's nothing for somebody who just runs a company, right? You're, you just have to stop and that's it. It's a really surreal situation, especially in Israel. It's like this high tech, you know, beast of a country, and all of a sudden, you know, you're shutting off innovation at a young age, but um, that is the case. So you have to sell the company. Um, and we ended up merging that into another company um, and deploying the business there. And it, it was a good financial outcome for us. So I don't regret it in that sense, because again, everything's life changing every time it happens again. So at the time, it was definitely life changing for us. But it's not something we wanted to do. It's something we had to do and just kind of gone through that experience. The story of part of a lot of companies I went through in my life, unfortunately. How old were you guys when you sold the business? Uh, 17, 18, something like that, 18. And what visibility did that give you on going through the cycle? I don't know that it gave us anything because remember, you know, you're 18, you're a moron. Like you don't know anything about anything. And yeah. which is kind of funny because then you go into the army, right? So give me a gun if I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? That makes perfect sense. But right. Um, yeah, of course, only an 18-year-old is dumb enough to go into the Army, too, right? Because once you're an adult, you realize it's a really horrible and you would never do it. But um, it, it, I, I didn't give it much thought, right? I, didn't, it's, I don't think any other sale process looks like that because you have to sell, not for money, not for So it's very rare that you have a company that generates cash that you just have to sell. 
it happens when you know the the patriarch dies sometimes and you have to kind of sell it off but even then you know you could still run the business for a while on its own right but here there was this business that wasn't designed to continue on without those people and then we had to we had to stop it right so or, or give it off so I, I didn't learn a lot from that um I, I wish i could even tell you i learned from the mistakes but i made most of those mistakes at least once or twice again later so I don't know. I'm trying not to make them four or five times, but two, three for sure. I hear you. So then obviously going to the army, you know, I'm sure that that gave you great discipline because even though, you know, it's painful to go to the army, you know, it's like a bunch of time, you know, that, that you're spending there. And then you come out, you know, I, I heard from other Israelis, you know, you go as a, as a, as a, you know, kind of like as a boy and you come out as a man, you know, like uh, out of an experience <laughs> like that. So I guess, you know, in your case, you know, you finished and uh, and then you actually, you know, went back at it, you know, on the business front, you know, with uh, helping, you know, with the spinoff of an HR company. So so what was that about? That's yeah, fine. I'm going to tell my commanders in the army that um, you that you think I learned discipline there. They'd probably have a different opinion about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I definitely did at the end, but I'd say in the early days, it took me a while to kind of find my stride. And I was in a unit that was you know very, very demanding. Uh, one of the most elite units in the army, and I, I definitely struggled there in the early, you know, months trying to define my footing. It took me a while. That discipline problem was because you go to the army, you're like this, this punk kid, and also I had a lot more money than other people that I thought I, I thought I knew something about life and didn't really appreciate. That I was just ridiculously lucky, right? But when you, you, know, you confuse that luck with you know with something real, and there really wasn't. It was just very just luck. Um, but yeah, by the time I was, I mean, I was also a captain at the end, spent more time than I had to in the service. So uh, I clearly chose to be a little more engaged there. But, but yeah, I mean, we went to school afterwards, um, way too many degrees between the two of us. And then um, Ben had gone, so a, a good friend of ours um, with his wife had built this really great company. She started and he joined it um, and really scaled it up around you know HR, but for really highly regulated industry. So think, you know, industries like the, the railroad industry, aviation, you know, those industries that have a lot of certification and it really matters who's allowed in certain places at certain times. And you know, there's a lot of logistics around, you know, the, the details of that. And it's also a business where the margins are still very small for the operators. So if you screwed something up, you're, you're losing a lot of money. Like the guy showed up late and you get a little fine. That fine might erode away the entire, you know, margin you had on that shift and you're losing money. So uh, they'd recognize they were doing a you know, really good job competing there, and they recognized if they built some type of software platform to manage their own internal, you know, workloads. You know, that somebody leaves for a shift, will he get there in time? Remember, this is an year before, before we had real good control over you know smartphones. And I could tell you where people are exactly with GPS, right? Still talking about like calculating SMS messages from the street they're at or something like that, things like that. And then what certification they had, you know, managing that in something like Salesforce, which seems kind of silly to be a, a novel thing at this point, but that was very novel for them back then. And they did such a good job. They were just winning these massive contracts, you know, like Ticketmaster. They just really, really big contracts um, that they ended up spinning off that software into another company. Um, we, uh, you know, Ben was obviously more integral part of that. And I came to help uh, get that done. But um, it was a really, really incredible um, spinoff there. The company, unbelievable success in, in really regulated industry. You know, Olympics, you know, in, in London and the railroad industry, right? So just really, really massive success. And then uh, that company was ultimately acquired um, by a company called Bullhorn, which is a, a very big uh, HR software company. 
Um, they used to be owned by Insight, or sorry, by, by Vista Equity. You know, when that spinoff started, and now they're owned by uh, by Vista, uh, or sorry, by Insight, I should say, it's using private equity firms here, but um, still very, very successful um, spinoff, and I'm uh, very, very proud of what that team was able to achieve. So it sounds like you were already on this path of um, of really pushing, you know, on the business side again. So, uh, you know, obviously you were getting like some really nice momentum and, and, and really lessons learned, you know, especially from going through another, you know, story like that. So why not, you know, keep going and, and, and why did you take like that uh, hiatus, you know, to uh, go and do your MBA at Wharton? Oh, so I, I started saying at 28, I'm retired. It doesn't sound very well when you say that. Um, it, people get a really bad visceral reaction when you say you're retired at 28. It's not like I was a billionaire at 28, right? Like we, we had much more successful exits after that, but it was a lot of money still for me at the time. Obviously, everything's all relative, but um, it, I was just ready to retire mentally. Um, but you can't say that. But if you say you're going to get an MBA, which is essentially retirement, <laughs> anyways, um, people don't ask. Oh, he's going to get an MBA. That that makes sense in career progression. <clears throat> Um, and I really wanted to go to Wharton. My wife was like, you know, you have to apply and you know, some essays and do all these things. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll do all those things. Like, and it wasn't from some, maybe there was some hubris, but I don't think it came from the core hubris. It came from actually pure stupidity. I had no clue what you needed to do to get into an MBA. Um, nobody told me. I never asked anyone. I didn't realize how much work you have to do just to apply to an MBA program. And I also didn't realize that I had already missed the first two rounds. So I'm applying third round. There are very few seats left and I have to get this GMAT and essays all done in like two and a half weeks to, to get the deadline, right? Um, so I was extremely lucky, again, uh, to be able to even get into Warren. Um, uh, I made the dumb mistake while I was at Warren to start another company. Um, what I should have done um, is just spend two years at Warren um, like everyone else did, which is party. That would have been amazing. Um, it would also mean that school's really easy because if you're not doing anything else, MBAs are not very hard, hard to get into, but the actual curriculum isn't usually very hard. It's usually very interesting. It's very informative. It's educating, but it's not designed to be extremely hard. You have to put in some work, right? We're not, yeah, it's an Ivy League school. It's not a shit show, but like no one's expecting you like in law school to like, you know, morning through night, you know, reading books. I went through that. That sucked, right? You're not just not expected to work that hard, but um, I made the mistake of starting a company. So then it became really hard. It's also you have very little time to do everything. Uh, but I, I did have a makeup session. So my wife went to HBS afterwards for her MBA to Harvard. Um, and that was after we had sold that company. So I was basically free a lot more time than I had during my MBA. So I spent a lot of time with her class who are really good friends of mine. Uh, some are even investors of ours. Uh, Lotus investor in the last round. So um, really, really great people. And I'm happy I got the, the, the do over over there. But um, yeah, that's how I ended up at Warren. I had a really good time. Honestly, it was a great time at Warren. I don't regret it. Yeah. I mean, the, the community there is fantastic, but as you say, you know, tough to get in, but then, you know, like once you're in, you know, you can just have a good time and, and, and really enjoy the community there. So, yeah, I mean, you can't completely slack off cause Wharton does have like a, an LT designation, like the, the lower 10%. So every single class there, you have to, you know, as a professor, give an LT at the bottom, you know, to kind of weed it out. So it does generate some kind of like bottom pressure that you can't be the worst in a class but but yeah getting in the hard hey guys this episode is brought to you by dot tech domains i mean obviously if you're a startup or an entrepreneur you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain and that's why i recommend dot tech domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain 
A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers, and that's again go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. In your case, you know, you were talking about Greencrest Capital, you know, so this is the company that you did, you know, on the side and you did this, you know, really kind of like under the the umbrella of of Knight Capital. You know, I mean, that was the the one that, the, you know, sponsored, you know, pretty much all the funding. So I guess what were you guys doing there uh, and why did you, you know, get just one, you know, to sponsor the whole thing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think. The company didn't evolve. Um, you know, there, there wasn't really phrasing. There wasn't a lot of planning in that company of you know what what could be multiple visions. There was a, a, a really good insight in that the late stage pre IPO market, and, and this is an insight that I shared, but I didn't think of first. Right, I, I joined as a founder essentially um, to a firm that was kind of getting off its feet, you know, really early seconds, and. Um, what the concept said is, hey, given that there's so many pre-IPO companies today, companies are staying private way longer than they did before. Remember, this is the height of the Facebook, Twitter, private era. And given that today they're not going public like they used to when they hit that kind of 100 million mark, and they're, they're, there's so much value here, there's got to be a way to trade these entities in an earlier stage before they hit the public market. And there has to be a need for that at the institutional level, because if I'm a Fidelity or T. Rowe or Putnam, I'm going to buy Facebook at the IPO. I have to, not just because I want to, maybe I want to as well in some of my funds, but I have to buy it across multiple funds because if I don't buy a stock at least to its market weight on the index, I'm essentially shorting by definition because that I'm getting benchmarked against the S&P. So if I don't have this as part of or S&P or NASDAQ, whatever your benchmark is, or maybe some other more specific one, whatever I'm benchmarked against and that public, you know, on that public indice, is going to have that IPO. So if I don't buy that IPO, I'm short. I don't want to short it. I don't even know if I have an opinion about this. So I have to buy my market. But here's the problem. When I go to that public offering now for the first time, there isn't enough allocation for all of us. It used to be the case that everybody who wants to get allocation will build a book and get to that number and go raise. Today, it's I know how much I'm going to raise up front, usually we up and down this range, but and I kind of know what the allocation could be. But here we have a situation, especially during those years, where I couldn't get my allocation. And if I can't get my allocation, I have to buy this in the private market just so I don't short it later. And you know what? It turns out that if I buy it in the private market, I usually get a discount. So I could actually make some money here in the private market in that delta along the way. And that was the insight that I think was always very true. Building that is really, really hard because that means going to companies like Facebook. Again, it's not the Facebook of today, but it was still a very big company back then, convincing them to work with us to be able to buy shares from them in a programmatic way, right? And then being able to to sell them later on, and so there's a lot of capital required to run that on a day to day basis for those acquisitions. These are multi hundred million dollar acquisitions, right? So there's a lot of money that's required to fund that. It's going to be sometimes for very short periods of time. So that very much looks like a market making type activity if you think about it from the strategy standpoint. Um, 
there's also some other concepts here that we always felt that, you know, given that there's enough data, this is essentially a data book. So we had collected ridiculous amounts of data way before anybody thought about data in private equity. Remember, this CBI was still a newsletter that came out with chubby brain signed at the bottom, right? And PitchBook was still this platform to, to you know, to do online pitch books, kind of like, um, you know, like a doc send kind of thing with PowerPoint, right? So this was way before they were collecting form Ds and giving you analytics. And I think companies like us and us were very involved in making, pushing them in that right direction. So incredible business they built. I wish I, I wish I was smart enough to invest in those businesses back then. Not that CBI would have even been open to it. PitchBook probably would have been at the time, but I wasn't smart enough to recognize how good they were going to be. Um, so we had a lot of data and a lot of ability to trade that. So Knight Capital actually made sense in that context because largest market maker in the world at the time. I think there probably are still today under the Vertu brand, but multiple different M&A along the years for fun reasons. Um, but again, biggest market maker in the world, technical and techno, you know, engineering prowess to be able to do almost anything you wanted. Really good high-touch sales team at the top. Amazing leadership up until a certain time. And then a company hadn't lost money a day in its existence for like, you know, 15, 20 years. So it's like the most sound capital partner that you could ever want. They understand short-term financing of everything. They were excited about our business and they promised a lot of things that made sense. So, you know, but for whatever, you know, happened with Knight down the road, I think they would have been an incredible partner. But, you know, sometimes things happen that are a little out of control and you learn a valuable lesson. So then, I mean, there was an algorithm that they actually, you know, destroyed the whole operation. How is that possible? We destroyed the whole stock market, not just the operation. Um, yeah, it was, um, it, it's such a crazy story when you think back. I, I'm still shocked that nobody wrote the book about it. Maybe the people are still afraid to go to jail, but um, it was just really incredible to witness this at the point of time. Um, I think the most visceral memory was, you know, at a, after everything happened, I'll, I'll tell you what happened in a second, but after everything happened, TJ was, you know, the, the CEO and founder at the time, you know, sitting on a conference call with a lot of and I'm sure there's press that was leaked in somehow because, you know, it's always the case in these big things. And this is the, the height of everybody was talking about this over the weekend. This is like over the weekend as the deal's being you know fixed before we open on Monday. And then you know, everybody's trying to figure out, like, who's, how do we fuck it up? Who's responsible? Like, who's, you know, and then, like, I heard it's a kid. It's some 24-year-old programmer on the call. And TJ was like, this is on me. Right. If a 24 year old programmer is trading, you know, engineering glitch brought down the company, how the hell could that kid be at fault? Think how many layers of, of shit show would have had to be in between, you know, paraphrasing um, for that to go wrong. We failed as an organization. I failed as a leader. And there'll be no, you know, naming and shaming here. This is on us on leadership. And this is just an incredible lesson in leadership from someone who's watching his entire life fall apart in front of him. Everything he worked so hard for, like falling apart over a coding glitch, right? And still standing there, like taking responsibility. It's just an unbelievable experience. I'll never forget. But um, unfortunately, what happened at night is we were so the way night capital, and this is like a lot of quote unquote market makers work is the job is basically to buy the, the order, flow, right? So I want you to do the order flow on our dark pool exchange. And maybe I don't use the word dark pool, maybe I just call it market maker. And given that I all do all the deals here, I can close that deal with the, the exchange or whatever it is that I'm trading on the other side of the counterparty. And still make a little money in between, right? Because I'm basically, I'm getting your order a little faster than everybody else is getting their order. And I'm kind of clearing those trades, right? There's a great book on it. By the way, Knight Capital is in that book um, called Flash Boys. Um, so yeah, it's a great if book. anybody, you know, Michael Lewis is an incredible author. It's a really, really great book on that. But um, what happened is, you know, we were one of those firms doing everything that, that book describes. 
and we had never lost money for a day. That's why, because nobody's taking risk, but the algorithm works. Um, but what happened was that we were getting order um, flow from the big retail firms like um, TD Ameritrade and Getco and all of them, not Getco, it was better time, um, like some of those more retail oriented investment shops. So you buy those orders from retail and then you sell that, you know, that data downstream for those transactions. And the New York Stock Exchange had come out with this program which said, hey, we don't want you to route your orders tonight. We want you to route them directly to us. So for a certain number of stocks, we're going to put them in this list here. We're going to lower our fees such that it will make sense for you to transact directly with us and not go to Knight, which is willing to give you basically zero fees because we're selling your data downstream, right? That's how they made money. And Knight was like, okay, with all due respect to New York Stock Exchange, we have more money than New York Stock Exchange, right? So we can just outbid you on everything and put you put your program out of business and, and make you not make any money on it. And they built this ridiculously complex program that was really brilliant when you think about it to you know, go to war against the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and it would have been successful, but for the fact that some of the test code was left in by accident when it went live. And this program went live with some test code. Instead of buying a certain number of stocks in a certain way, it was buying the whole market. And what happens when you buy the whole market is, A, you run out of money pretty fast, right? So you get a capital call from your, your capital partners pretty quickly because you're out of money, right? You literally can't buy anything. Um, and you also have another problem, which is you're affecting the market, right? You're buying enough stuff that you're, you're changing the entire market trajectory in real time. Um, and that's exactly what happened. We were hitting circuit breakers. The entire market crashed. Do you remember those flash crashes that goes like zero for a millisecond? Well, this is, this is the one, this is how it happened. And we got to see that live, which was an incredible experience. And then, um, after that happened, we were in a whole, you know, many billions of dollars. Then we traded back from some of it live, which is also a pretty incredible story. That maybe that's what people don't want to tell. But someday people will tell less legal restrictions around that story, maybe. Um, and then we tried to reverse the trades, uh, but uh, unfortunately, um, SEC kind of said, you're on your own. You know, you're so intertwined with the industry. This isn't retail money that's going to get lost. Got to figure it out on your own, um, which was a, a tough blow, but I think probably a fair blow in retrospect. And it worked. So Goldman Sachs bought that book, you know, something cents on a dollar. I don't remember the exact number. Uh, and put in money together with Jeffries, which just went through their own restructuring not not too long before that. So they were really trained at doing that at really great big bankers. Really a lot of credit to the Jeffries and Goldman Sachs bankers who put that package together. And then uh, Getco uh, merged into that and some money from some of the, the, the retail partners. And by Monday morning, this whole thing opened up again as a new entity. Instead of called Knight Capital, it's called Knight Capital Group. That was it. It was a brand new company Monday morning. Um, a lot of people walked out of those offices with big brown boxes. Um, but not us. We had to sell to another firm, unfortunately. So you guys uh, sold, you know, in this case, you know, to Oppenheimer. But uh, but I'm sure that, uh, you know, that whole experience really armed you for what you're doing today. You know, what you're doing today, you know, you guys are in this rocket ship. Uh, but I guess for the people that are listening to really get it, you know, what is the business model of Cherry? How do you guys make money? We sell a platform that allows large asset managers, banks, insurance companies, and other technology firms to connect all their disparate real estate or spatial data to one place to be able to have very advanced insights into either acquiring assets or managing assets they acquire. And we charge our clients for the platform and they have separate fees, the data vendors and applications they consume. Um, and we charge a SaaS fee um, to be able to use that platform to be able to make all that data speak to each other. And also you guys have raised quite a bit of money from great people. How much capital have you guys raised in total and what has been that experience like? Yeah, so we raised about 75 million so far. 
Um, one thing I'll say, it, it's a lot easier to raise money as a repeat um, founding team. Um, I'm not sure that the statistics say that a second time founder is more successful than a first, but I'm pretty sure that if you've succeeded twice, the likelihood of being successful third and fourth would, tends to be very high, right? So if you're able to build the, the initial zero to one successfully multiple times, you clearly know how to do that. You may never be able to take it from one to 100 or from or usually it's zero to one, one to 10, 10 to 100. We're in that 10 to 100 range right now as a company. But um, it, it, usually if you can do that zero to one a few times, it, it, there's a pattern recognition. And I, I think that VCs, they won't say this, right? They'll, they'll give you some really long, cynical, smart answer because they are smart people. And there's more truth than what I'm oversimplifying to death right now. But at its core, fundraising is, is very, very simple. VCs want to hear, this is massive, it's going to change the world. Why? Because if it doesn't change the world, A, I don't care, we're not going to make enough money. Right? It's a proxy for how much money you need to make. Because in VC land, right, if I have a, to be a top quartile fund, I have to return 3, 4x on capital. So if I raise the $100 million fund, just to be in that top quartile, I have to return at least 300, 400 to my investors. And if I, by the time I get to an exit, if I'm an early stage investor, I only have what, on average, 10%. You know, holding it you know, early, I maybe I had 25, 30, and I diluted myself down to 10 because at some point I can't follow on. I don't have enough capital to do that the later rounds. So that exit has to be, I have to have at least three, four billion dollars in exits just to return a hundred million dollar fund and be able to raise my next fund. That's really, really hard to do because how many three, four billion dollars worth of exits are there, right? So that's not an easy thing to achieve. And most of my, my, most of my portfolio is going to be write-offs anyway. So I only care about something that could be massively successful. So it has to change the world, you know, maybe not some altruistic change the world necessarily, but it has to change the world. I also need to be able to answer, is this going to be something that the VC is going to go home and tell their friends about? Meaning it's interesting. There's a, there's a story to be told. And I know that sounds stupid, cynical, but I, I promise you it's correct. If a VC walked home and told his wife or his partner or their friends at the bar, yeah, I hear this company I talked, I met them yesterday, that they're working on this really, really cool thing. So. Um, my, my buddy works on this thing that's growing insects to be able to replace proteins, um, to be able to be fed um, to other types of livestock, let's say chickens, right? So chickens are buying a lot of proteins, and that's ridiculously expensive. And also, it's destroying the, the environment. And he's a staunch capitalist, you know, sold the company very successfully, and says, you know, I want to fix the world, but I'm, I'm a staunch capitalist. I want to put money into these insects that are going to replace protein. I'm going to grow them in India because it's stupid cheap, so I can actually grow this protein cheaper than the proteins there are today, and I'm saving Earth at the same time. That's really cool. You're changing the world. It's an unbelievable story. It's impressive. I'm also going to be able to go home and tell people. I just told you about it, right? All the listeners are here about this cool idea. It's a really, really cool, you know, concept. That, you know how how incredible they are changing the world. That, so that test matters, right? Because if I had to call home and like I met this company, I don't really care to tell you about it. It's just not that interesting to tell you about. I'm not going to invest in that, right? So it has to have that that element of a of a story in it as well. And I have to believe that you, this founder, is going to will this shit into existence, right? Because this is the hardest thing to do in the world. It, it, I mean, I'm sure the, the roofing in July and August, as Bill Burr would say, is probably harder, but it, it's a really, really hard job to build a successful company and hire people and scale it. And I have to believe that this person's going to, or people are going to will this into existence against all odds. If you can answer those three checkboxes, though, you can raise capital. And you could be anyone. You could be of any you know, ethnicity, race, color, creed, like religion. If you can answer these three questions where I think you're going to change the world. It's that massive. A lot of things can go wrong. I'm not asking that. 
if everything went well, you're going to be able to change the world. And it's going to be something cool that I want to tell my friends about how interesting this is. And I believe that you can will this shit into existence. You can raise money. And I have to tell that story still. Right? I, I don't change on that. I, I obviously believe in it. But um, it's easier to tell that story when you've built a few companies in your past. So we've been very fortunate um, to bring a pretty eclectic group of really, really smart investors. Some on the hardware side of the house who can kind of think about building compute platforms and have done that for many, many years. Um, some on more of the data side of the house who've been building high-frequency data platforms for many years. Um, some of our board members as well, you know, built data companies, you know, part of building Capital IQ and, you know, Blackstone's technology arm and, or, or Julie Overs, you know, president of, of Microsoft's development division. So people who really understand data, really understand building really influentially uh, massive companies um, and companies that are also really hard and complex to build, right? So the building Cherry is an extremely complex problem. Um, it's not one of those things where you just kind of swip some code together and put in a front, then it works. You know, we have to build relationships with you know, hundreds of data and application vendors that are very, very complex from a business standpoint and from a technical standpoint. We have to build ways of getting data consistently out of all those places and, and a lot of challenges into one place and resolve that data to each other. We have to make that data accessible and all that has to happen uh, really, really fast, right? So it's a really, really hard organization to build both from the business standpoint and the technical standpoint. Um, so I'm extremely appreciative of the partners that we have along the way. Um, and obviously the, it's a cliche, but we could have done it without. So in terms of vision that, uh, you know, you shared with him, you know, with, 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 with them, with all the investors, with employees, with anyone else that you've onboarded, you know, let's, let's talk about here in the future. Let's say you were to go to sleep tonight and you were to uh, wake up in a world where the vision of Cherry is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, so I, um, it's funny that you say that because we drew that on a napkin in 2018 and we're working our way to that, right? So uh, unlike previous companies where maybe some of them kind of evolved, this one we gave a lot of thought to when we started. We really wanted um, real estate to look like financial services, right? So the same, the same idea where I can, you know, think about uh, you and I you know, arguing about where Apple stock was yesterday. You say, well, you know, Aldi, you're mad. I'll just go look at the ticker, and that's the number. You know, that you, know, you can have an opinion, great, but I don't care. Um, that's real estate. I just described real estate too. We're arguing about where Apple stock was yesterday because nobody knows. Um, so there are a lot of core challenges in our industry. So, but if you can wave a magic wand and, and deliver on our vision, um, all data is ubiquitously connected and uniformly um, delivered. To me. So that means that I can go to one place answer all those complex real estate questions and make all that past, you know, completely um, uniform across the area. So that becomes commoditized, the ticker data, right? And then on top of that, you start seeing this emergence of alternative data within the real estate industry, right? So real estate at its core is understanding what availability of capital, what the demographics look like, and trying to find the arbitrage, right? So once all that becomes commoditized, now it's what other data can I bring? Can I bring in car data? Can I bring in, you know, foot traffic data? Can I bring in weather patterns or what type of stores are opening up. And maybe that will give me all the indication, right? All that advanced um, type of information, it gets really cool. And then you start building models on top of that, right? But buying and selling real estate becomes less and less of a storytelling business and becomes a lot more of a, hey, I know what I feel about those assets, you know, like some of the SFR folks who are buying assets in real time or close to real time, at least in our industry, um, and having this really a data-driven environment, right? So if we did everything right, real estate, um, looks like financial services, the technology infrastructure, you start seeing exchanges, you start seeing advanced data platforms buying that, you start seeing quote unquote hedge funds, um, you know, 
heavily involved in this industry and, and buying, you know, based on data. Um, and you see Cherry at the base of all. I love it. So, um, so to wrap it up here, I want to ask you, you know, the last question is, you know, if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment that maybe you were like, I don't know, I think that on the 14 year old side of things, you probably were a little bit young, so you wouldn't listen, you know, our younger selves don't listen that much, but let's say to that moment where you were coming out of the army, uh, thinking about, you know, what would be next, you know, maybe getting into business, maybe even starting your own, uh, your next company. And you were able to give that younger LD a, a piece of advice for starting a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm really bad at giving advice. I don't even listen to my own advice that I give most of the time. So I take it for what it's worth. Um, I think everything's risk. And I think most people are petrified from taking risk or, or about taking risk. And the reason is there's a massive stigma to fail in your mind. Because in your mind, if you tried something and failed at it, you're a failure and you're embarrassed and your friends will laugh at you and your family will be upset that maybe you lost some other money that you collect. Um, nobody will ever remember your failures, ever. They only remember your successes, so long as you have success. Um, and if you try enough, you'll succeed, just the way the world works. And my core belief is that willingness to take risk is a number one differentiator from of founders and non-founders. That's all it is, just a willingness to take risk. And I appreciate that's a very privileged statement to say because a lot of people can't take risks, right? So even if they wanted to, they can't. They come from backgrounds where they're supporting their families, where their educational environment doesn't you know, tell them they can do that, or they're, they're you know, abject poverty. Right? There, there are a lot of reasons why somebody can't take risk or, and truly can't take risk to, to an equal degree as I've been able to. So I feel very privileged and fortunate to be able to do that. But still, for anybody who's in a position where you can take risk, I would highly recommend that you do so. Nobody will hold those failures against you so long as you succeed down the road on your successes. That should liberate you um, and understand that investors who give you money are being paid to take risk. That's okay. Let them pay to take the risk and you take the risk for them and always be honest and open about that journey. And even in your failure, you will be successful. So have fun. I love it. So, LD, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, so, if you want to see me shit posting, that's probably Twitter. Nothing smart I will ever say on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but I'm there at, at Sistep, S Y S T E P. Um, you can also just uh, look up my name on LinkedIn, um, follow me there. Mostly charts and graphs about things about data that interest me. Amazing. Well, hey, LD, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks for having me. It was great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.